um, best-selling book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or, or heard of it, show of hands, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, very popular book. It was 1989 that uh, it was written um, and, and still widely known, widely read, although maybe apparently not. In, anyway, and, uh, and, uh, and, and habit, number two, uh, habit number two in this book was begin with the end in mind. Uh, begin with the end in mind. And, and so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to begin 2023 uh, with, with the end in mind. But of course, the end that we're talking about is, is the ultimate end. Uh, verse 1 of our uh, revel- reading from Revelation, we're, we're, the end that we're talking about is the new heavens and the new earth, the, the end uh, of the new Jerusalem, our, our ultimate end uh, to encourage us as we begin 2023, uh, and if you like, the first day for the rest of our lives. Uh, uh, there was a bishop, Anglican bishop uh, in England, um, J.C. Ryle, uh, and it was around the time that um, Australia, the first fleet was coming out to Australia, um, and, and, and he was a British uh, Anglican bishop, and he said this, he said, the man who is about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employment, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. Uh, all these are subjects of deep interest to him or her. You're leaving the land of your nativity and you're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now, surely, if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it now. And, and, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. And uh, this was not just some merely academic ivory tower issue for the people that John was writing to, because he was writing to a group of people who were facing terrible persecution and incredible hardship. The life in this world was not like life in Cottesloe. It was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly hard. And so he wrote to them to try and give them a living hope in this difficult and dark world in which they lived so that they'd be able to endure uh, to the end until they made it to that better country. You see, the degree to which you understand your future, uh, the degree to which you can really take to heart what it is that's in store for you will enable you to face whatever life throws at you uh, because you have this living hope, not in your head, but as a living reality in your heart. The Bible talks about this as a living hope. And so today we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the nature of this hope. We're going to talk about the need you have for this hope and then how to get it. And I've got to confess, uh, this is an abiding time. I've basically ripped these points off from Tim Keller. I'm just trying to cut, cut myself some slack over this, uh, this season. Uh, you really give it all at Christmas and then you... So there you go, the, need, the hope, the nature of this hope, that's where we're looking at first. And you see the nature of the hope in verse 2 of Revelation 21. If I'm not mistaken, it was page 1007, you can have it in front of you. And have a look at the nature of this hope in verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, did you catch the nature of this hope? It's easy, easy to miss. The nature of this hope, John is saying... What he's actually saying is, we don't go to heaven, heaven comes to us. Did you see it? Verse 2, 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Oh, we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. He saw it coming down out of heaven. You see, the danger of using language, we use it all the time. The danger of using language of, um, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, is is that by implication, depending on what you're thinking when you say that, is that it sounds like you're going to leave the material world behind, that, that God's going to leave the material world behind. And, 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 and that's because the, the climax is heaven, which is a spiritual place. It's not a physical place. But, but that is not a biblical idea by any stretch of the imagination. That is a Greek idea. And we have been thoroughly influenced by this platonic, this Greek idea that I'm going to go to heaven as if, as if we're going to leave the material world behind. No, John is saying the nature of this hope is that heaven comes to us. Now, the key to getting a biblical idea of this future that we have, as always with everything, is to look at the Lord Jesus, right? He's the key to help us understand all of these things. And particularly the fact that with Jesus, when God raised him from the dead, he was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. No, he had a body. He had a physical body when he was raised from the dead. Paul talks about it as a spiritual body, which to our heads is like, well, how does that work? Spirit is immaterial and body is material. So how can it be a spiritual body? Well, no, it's saying that he was so filled with the Holy Spirit that every cell in his body was brimming with the eternal life and glory and power of God. But it was a physical body, a spiritual body. Um, the Bible talks about when Christ was raised from the dead, he, he says, the Bible says he was the first fruits of the new creation. Have, have you heard that term, first fruits? It's, it's an agricultural term, isn't it? And the idea is that when harvest comes, you, the early part of the harvest is the first fruits of the fullness to come. It's the same quality, right? You're not, if you've sown, if you, if the first fruits are corn, you're not getting apples, right? It's the same quality. And Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was the first fruits of the, of the new creation. And what that means is that we look to Jesus to get our understanding of what the new creation is going to be like. And Jesus was not raised as a ghost. He was not raised as a spirit. He was a physical being filled and brimming with the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that means with him as the first fruits, as we look to him, is that God is not going to just redeem the world spiritually or emotionally. God is redeeming the world physically. He's going to redeem this world that we're in, a new heavens and a new earth. You know, sometimes we act like, you know, God made the world and then, and then he's just going, oh, well, I guess that didn't work. Huh, too bad. Throw it out. And we'll we'll just go to heaven where things are better and things are spiritual and whatever. No, God made the world and it was good. 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 And it was very good. We don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us to redeem and renew the goodness. The world is going to be radically rewoven with every cell and every atom brimming with the eternal Glory and power of the living God. It's going to be restored and renewed fullness. We're we're going to hug each other. We're going to dance. We're going to clap. Everything is going to be renewed and restored. You know, one of the ways in which we know this as we look to Jesus as the first fruits is that he ate a fish. Not my cup of tea for breakfast. But he ate a fish. 
he appeared to the disciples and he said, hey, give me a fish. And he took the fish, he ate the fish, it was cooked. And they're like, oh my goodness, he's not a ghost. He ate a fish. He was a physical being and not a ghost. And so it's not going to be floating on clouds with babies on hearts, with wings and angels and mental telepathy and esoteric souls floating somewhere up there. No, it's going to be a physical new heavens and a new earth. And this is all what we've been looking for. You know, there's this thing about this painful reality that we sometimes experience where, where we remember as a child, one of, like really wonderful times and places that we've been to. You know, the greatest, the best memories that we have. It might have been the greatest beach house. It might have been the greatest holiday. It might have been the greatest time with, with friends or with family, the greatest this, the greatest that. But then, but then as adults, we go back to that place and we're like, oh, it's not all that it was cracked up to be. Uh, there's a romantic poet, Goethe. He, there's a name for this in German. It's called Zainzucht. And this is the word for blissful longing or painful aching. It's a word for the yearning of, of the soul, for that longing, for that ache, for fullness that, that can never be found in this life. It's, it's a longing for the body that you've never had. It's the longing for the holiday that you've never had, for the relationship that you've never been able to enjoy, for the experience that you've never had, ultimately for the world that you've never had. And friends, the nature of this hope, John says in verse 2, is look, it's coming. Everything that you've been longing for, the fulfillment of all your deepest desires, it's, it's coming, it's real. The stories are true. Verse 3, see the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they'll be his people. Verse 4, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the old order of things has passed away. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. The stories are true. You know, there's this, time, there's this point in The Lord of the Rings um, where Sam Gamgee, uh, he says this. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Remember that devastating? He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asked this question. Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And John is saying, Yes. Everything sad will be wiped away. No more mourning or grieving. It's coming. It's on the way. It's not individual souls escaping off into heaven and floating up into a cloud. No, it's heaven coming down to earth. He says, see, I am making all things new. And the wonder and the glory of the gospel is that it starts now. That vision of the temple, the river flowing out of the temple, is talking about us. It's talking about the saints We are the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of this hope. But let's look at how practical this is. Let's look at why you need this. Um, Think about again the the people who John is writing to in Revelation, right? First century Rome, not like Cottesloe Beach. Uh, Who were they? Why was he writing for them? Why was he telling them this? Well, these are people who are suffering terribly, Uh, If you've read the letters, the seven letters in Revelation, um, chapter 2 and 3, you see the kind of suffering that they were going through. But but you can see it in verse uh, 4 as as well, where it says, 
Essentially, these are people who have tears in their eyes, who are dying for Christ, who are mourning and crying and in pain. These are the people that he's writing to. And these are people who experience pain far more than most of us will ever experience in our entire lives. You know, you know who came to the the, um, the throne if they had a throne in in Rome uh, at the end of the first century. It was Emperor Domitian, and he was a monster. This is where widespread, large scale persecution. This tiny group of Christians. I mean, there were 120 on Pentecost Day. Tiny group of Christians being persecuted viciously by Emperor Domitian. That's these guys that John is writing to. You know, their their homes were taken away and. And plundered, they were thrown into the arena to be torn apart by wild beasts as the crowds cheered and celebrated. They were impaled on stakes while they were still alive and covered in pitch and and set on fire to light up the emperor's gardens while they died. They, they were crucified in the hundreds and thousands on the cross. You know, the, the, the entryway in and out of Rome with crucified Christians so that as people came in and came out, they would watch Christians die by inches being crucified. These are the people that John is writing to in Revelation. It's, it's a long way away from Cottesloe. And yet what is it that he gives them? What is it that he gives them? It's this. It's this picture of a new heavens will wipe every tear away. Their death and mourning will be no more to give them a living hope so that they're able to endure through to the end. And friends, don't we know from the history of the church that it worked? Don't we know that it worked? There was 120 of them. How many are there today? More than a billion. The hope that he gave them was a living hope that enabled them to endure so that they had faced their death with such peace and such poise. They sang hymns while they were being torn apart by wild beasts. They were able to forgive the people who were persecuting them. They took their death and their suffering and their mourning and crying and pain with such peace and such poise that the more that they were killed and persecuted, the more the movement grew. So that the early church father, Tertullian, he said this, watching all of this horrendous persecution, he came up with this famous quote. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's what he said. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because the more they died for Christ, the more the movement grew and the more that it spread as as pagan crowds watched on to these Christians who were dying with such peace and such poise, forgiving their enemies, singing hymns, they looked upon them and went, I need that. Where does that come from? That's what I want. That's what I need. You know, in 1 Peter, it's about a group of um, persecuted Christians too. And, and, and it says, always be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have in you. And this is what they had, this living hope How do you get that? I need that. I want that. And this is what enabled them to grow. And don't you you and I need that too? The fact is that all humans, everyone here are hope-shaped creatures. We have this God-shaped void that no amount of riches or fame is able to fill, right? Just one illustration to to illustrate the point that, that we need this hope within us, an eternal hope that conquers the grave. It's a story about two men who were, who were thrown into a deep, dark dungeon. They were going to suffer there for 
10 years of hard labor. This was a, a punishment uh, and their penalty. But just before they went um, into this dark dungeon, uh, one of the men discovered that his wife and child were dead. The other one found, just before he was put up in, in prison, that his wife and child were alive and they were waiting for him to be free. Well, you know how the story goes. After just a few short years, the first man just wasted away. He curled up and died because he didn't have any hope. But the, but the other man endured and, and resisted and fought until the end, until he came out and he actually was able to see his wife and his child. Well, you say, well, uh, that's obvious, isn't it? No, it's not obvious. Think about it. The same circumstances, exactly the same dungeon, the same situation, yet they experience their now in two completely, utterly different ways because of what they believed about their future, because of what they believed about their then. Do you see? The now is controlled by the then. They were both experiencing exactly the same circumstances in two entirely different ways because of their belief about the future. It makes all the difference in the world. Do you believe that when you die you're going to rot and just join the earth and that the sun is going to someday run out into nothing and that human civilization is going to be completely gone and no one's going to remember anything about anyone because none of it counts? Or do you believe in the new heavens and the new earth? Do you believe in a judgment day where every wrong will be put to right? And this picture here where he'll wipe every tear away from your eyes. These are two utterly different futures. And depending on which one you believe about the future, it's going to shape your now dramatically. You know, we've had friends who had it all. They had wealth, they had fame, and, and they just came to the point where they, that, that, that it just didn't work because of this God-shaped void. And they've come to Christ now, despite having everything. Friends, no amount of mansions or luxury is able to fill this God-shaped void because it can't conquer the grave. You can't take it with you unless you're in Christ. And so this is the future that we have to look forward to. Now, the truth is that none of us are going to be crucified on a cross, I hope. We're not going to be put up on stakes and covered in pitch and, and burnt Alive, We're not going to face anything like what these first century Christians were facing. And yet we still have things that are bothering us. Still, We still have things that weigh us down and cause us terrible angst. They're stealing our joy, even though we've got it easy com- compared to them. How, how is that? What's going on here? Well, it's a simple fact of history that people who are able to take this hope this living hope of the future, and they're able to rub it into every last crevice of their hearts and every situation that they're in, are able to conquer every set of circumstances that are thrown their way. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1, I pray for you now that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the glorious hope of God in Christ. We need our eyes open. You know, part of the problem in this context is that our eyes and appetites are filled with the full bellies and Christmas plates and, and, and the beach and, and everything so much that, that we've lost a taste for the eternal and the everlasting. But how do we get it? 
How do we get this hope? Well, it's by believing in the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. It's, it, it's through the cross, the, the one who conquered the grave. You know, it's actually there by implication. If you, if you pick up on the imagery in verse 6 and you understand that the guy who wrote Revelation is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the letters of John. And if you put all those three together, you start to get the rich imagery of what he's talking about in verse 6 when he says, To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Can you remember that story where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman by the well? And, and, and man, she is thirsty. She's made a complete mess of everything. But Jesus says, hey, guess what? If you come to me and drink the water that I give, you're going to have streams of living water bursting out of you. And, and this is what she's been looking for her entire life, right? That's why she's had five husbands. She's, she's been longing. She's been aching. She's been trying to get out of the world what only God and Jesus are able to provide. And, and Jesus says, so I can give you a foretaste of that river of life. I can give you a foretaste of that fullness of peace and of joy. And you'll never be thirsty again. What does that mean, never be thirsty again? It means the deepest longings of your soul, the longings for love, for intimacy, for, for joy, for value and worth and fruitfulness. Like in the image of the temple in Ezekiel 47, that all of those longings will be satisfied in this river of life that Jesus is offering to give. And, and Jesus is saying you, to the woman and to us, you don't have to wait. This is not pie in the sky when you die. This is cake on your plate while you wait. You, you don't have to wait. He's saying, I will give it to you. Now, sure, there is more to come, infinitely more than you could possibly imagine, so that in a 100 billion years into it, we haven't scratched the surface of the life and the glory that is to be found in the infinite and glorious life-giving God. Sure, there's more to come, but I want to give you the first fruits. I want to give you a foretaste of that through the gift of my spirit and the rivers of living water, eternal life going, flowing out of you. You can have it all for free, he says, without cost, without price. How can that be? How can he offer that to us? Well, at the end of the Gospel of John, this is the answer. Because there's a moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And while he's hanging there, he says, I thirst. In our reading, Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, I thirst. He is thirsty. He's not just talking about physical thirst. He's talking about the spiritual thirst. Because, you know, he also said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. You see, on that cross, Jesus was experiencing the cosmic thirst that we all deserve for turning our backs on the source of life so that he would be cut off and we would be flooding and flowing with the eternal life and the rivers of living water that are in Christ. He was experiencing the cosmic hopelessness that we all deserve for turning our backs on the hope of the world so that we could have that living hope living inside of us through the power of the mighty Holy Spirit gushing out of us. You know, I love that, that, that this 
streams of living water. That's what we see in the early church when God poured out his spirit upon them. And you know the image of the temple where it's just flooding first. It's like a trickle, then knee deep, then knee deep, waist deep. and that's a fl- Don't we see that in the early church as God pours out his Holy Spirit, the streams of living water, and 120 saints, and it floods the entire world and makes it even to our shores here in Cottesloe. These are the streams of living water. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you think he gives us a different spirit? Do you think he gives us a different life? Jesus says, see, I'm making all things new. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new is come. Think about the newness, the fullness of Jesus' resurrection. The new has come through the gift of the Spirit. And so no matter what life throws at us in 2023 or beyond, no matter what sufferings, no matter what hardship, we have this living hope. Just like it says in that hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today. It goes like this, one of the verses. Soaring now where Christ has led, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the graves, the skies. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to this glorious hope that we have in Christ and your immeasurably great power for us who believe. Father, would streams of living water flow out of your temple, which is us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that we would abound with glory and hope and that the streams would flow and everywhere it touches would bear fruit and bring life and hope and renewal. Lord, thank you for the foretaste just the tiny foretaste and first fruits of the fullness to come. Lord, fill us with that hope on New Year's Day in 2023. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.